Hey, welcome to another installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined today by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Good day. Also joining me and Peter here at WGBH's Brighton Studios, Joan Vinaki, the must-read columnist from the Boston Globe. Joan, as always, really good to have you here. Nice to be here. Thanks, Adam. So if you are a loyal Scrum listener, you've probably noticed a dearth of new episodes over the past few weeks. That is due in part to the fact that I have been traveling more than usual covering Elizabeth Warren as she makes the shift from prospective to official presidential candidate and pitches herself around the country. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how Warren's been doing over the past few weeks compared to the rest of the burgeoning Democratic field, including Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, who just announced her candidacy on the same weekend that Warren did. We'll also talk about Congressman Seth Moulton's prospective presidential bid in the wake of an interview he did with BuzzFeed News, in which he said, I'm thinking about running for president. I'm not definitely running, but I'm going to take a very hard look at it, a very serious look at it. But let's start with Elizabeth Warren. Joan Vernaki, it's been about a month and a half, I think, since Elizabeth Warren announced her presidential exploratory committee. A few days ago, of course, she made her candidacy official at a kickoff event in Lawrence. Now you have to imagine that we're hearing the cheering, adoring crowds. So, Joan, my question to you at the outset, has Warren standing changed at all, do you think, in relation to the rest of the Democratic field between then and now? Uh, And if so, has it gotten stronger or weaker? Well, you've been out in the field, so actually I'm more interested in hearing what you have to say than what I think. But I'll, you know, just give you a few random thoughts. Um, I think she had a great kickoff from her exploratory campaign. It sounded like she really had that under control. She was out in Iowa and you were there because I was following it on Twitter. Um, It seemed like she had good crowds, good reception. Um, She was honing her messages, they say. Um, And then she kind of ran into this um, roadblock again, having to do with her heritage when um, the Washington Post reported that there was a bar application card that showed that on, on... listed under race, she had, in her own handwriting, written American Indian. Um, I saw that, and I thought it kind of crossed a line. Maybe it was like a mental line to see it in her own handwriting like that, and it sort of spurred me on or inspired me to write a column saying that I think she would have a really tough time beating President Trump. Um, And I think that Democrats who are looking for someone who can win are going to have second thoughts. Now, I could stand, I can be totally wrong. I mean, for all the people who thought Trump couldn't win, he's in the White House. That kind of set her back. But she's been in recovery mode. Um, And you also now are looking at her against the backdrop of all the other people out there. She has a strong message. um, She knows how to campaign. And we'll see. Before we get to Peter, I'll just share really briefly one thing that I noticed at her kickoff event and right after is that there seems to be a shift going on from people who are sympathetic to Warren but not maybe 100% ready to support her. I heard people bring up the ancestry issue and her handling of it as a potential concern when I was in Iowa, also in Puerto Rico, also in New Hampshire. But I feel like there's a shift beginning now to maybe pointing the finger at those of us in the press who are continuing to keep this issue alive. So we can talk more about that in a second. Peter, I got to give you a chance to get in here. Where do you think Warren stands vis-a-vis the other Democrats? uh, And is she better off now or worse off than she was six weeks ago? 
First of all, I agree with Joan's general assessment, and I would say she's not in really a very different place. By the way, it's very easy to say that because these are very, very early days. And until Biden and Bernie Sanders make up their mind, we don't really know what the contours of, of the contest are going to be. And then there's the Beta O'Rourke question. Um, I, I don't put him in the same category as Biden and um, Biden and Bernie, but um, you know these three people, whether how they decide, um, w- will sh- shape things. I mean, w- we're in what I've been referring to just in my own imagination as the the peanut gallery primary. You know, those of us in the press are at the moment probably having an outsized influence. You know, the real primaries take place in in so-called smoke-filled rooms or in the high-tech places that process the small donations. And then, you know, later this year, around December or so, the the on-the-ground game gets going in, in, in serious business. Klobuchar is a very interesting candidate, and she's interesting to compare and contrast with Elizabeth Warren. On paper, Nate Silver, the 538 guru, has concluded that Klobuchar is probably more electable against Trump than Warren, although he's not dismissing Warren's electability. But Warren is probably more electable in the primary field. Now, that's early days. That's the challenge she has to overcome. Is his conclusion there based on number crunching that he usually does or on sizing up their respective messages and concluding that Klobuchar would play better with moderates and maybe even some conservatives. There is now, hold on to your hats, a lot of uh, statistical regression analysis done. I don't quite understand what he's doing with the numbers, but he comes out with a very convincing bottom line. You know, there's there's another factor here, and, and that's, you know, Warren is probably best described as a woman of the left in Klobuchar is best described as center left. And if you take a look at their respective kickoffs, the the message I took away from Elizabeth Warren in in her own words, she says, listen, we can't tinker around the edges. She's calling for for radical change. Big structural change. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Klobuchar talks more in the language of community that we're all in this together. Now, that doesn't preclude big structural change, but, you know, there is a difference here in how these two, you know, very accomplished women are are approaching things. And and by the way, if the listeners are wondering, well, how about Kamala Harris, I'm intentionally not putting her in here because I I, I think that's a, a different set of issues for another time. All right, that's that's reasonable, and it's probably helpful actually to be able to bracket her and leave her out, and and focus on Warren and Klobuchar, and of course Congressman Walton. What do you two make of this question? And I know I'm stealing Emily Rooney's beat the press hat here a little bit, but is the ancestry issue, as I always describe it when I write web stories or do radio pieces about this, is it an issue of Warren's own making that voters are concerned about? Or is it an issue of the press's making, which voters 
maybe have been concerned about but might conclude we're keeping alive for no reason? Or is it something in between or something else altogether? Or do we even know? Well, it's part of the uh, but her email analysis, right? If only we hadn't written about Hillary and her email, she would be president. I reject that. I actually reject that analysis. Um, I wrote, and I believe, I don't think it matters if we write about Elizabeth Warren's ancestry or we don't write about it. It's now part of the narrative that people think. Now, maybe not the the every voter in the world. I mean, we're very Elizabeth Warren-centric here since yeah, she's are. from Massachusetts. We've been uh, covering this issue more or less since from 2012 when she ran against Scott Brown. Anyone who, you know, follows um, Trump and his tweets knows that it's a big uh, point of controversy with him. But I would argue that if I never wrote a different, another word about Elizabeth Warren and her ancestry, and you never spoke of it, and Peter, you never spoke of it, and that it's still part of what a certain group of voters would think when they saw her, for better or worse, it's part of the narrative. And they're either going to have to decide that it's baggage that's too heavy or that it's not important enough to derail nominating her as the Democratic Party nominee. I would tend to agree with Joan. And the issue here is we've got a year and a half before the election in, you know, a year minus a couple of days before the New Hampshire primary and, you know, 11 months before Iowa. There's plenty of time for real voters to make up their own mind. And whatever happens, I think while we in the media need to be careful that we don't go overboard with the issue, I think there's so much time here that um, Elizabeth Warren has the time to address it. And I guess also to not bring it up again in a negative way, because whereas I did hear some people complaining about the Washington Post tracking down that Texas bar card, not too long ago, it was her doing the big DNA test rollout with the campaign-style video and website. So that was her bringing it up rather than us bringing it up. Could I just add one other thing? Um, the Globe editorialized, and this time I agreed with the Globe editorial, <laughs> that, um, gosh, I wish she would just say, these are all the places that I put down. I was American Indian or, or yeah. Native American or whatever. Or they, minority, yeah. Or minority. Just, I don't understand why she, I don't understand why she didn't do that in 2012, I don't understand why she didn't do it back in the fall when she did the big sit-down with Annie Linsky, who then wrote for The Globe, now of The Post, to at least have just gotten it all out there so that it isn't a drip, drip, drip and, and a, a continuing headline. Um, I know there are people that think it's not important and we're, uh, you know, we're focusing too much attention on it, but gosh, I mean, it, it's it, every time another one comes out, to me, it's harder to accept the premise, her premise for why she did it, that this was a way to honor relatives who were dying. I don't know how that holds up on a bar registration card. Yeah, I mean, there is the possibility <laughs> she just didn't remember that. I would think, though, if, you know, with standard operating procedure for political campaigns to hire their own political opposition research and say, go after me the same way that my opponents will go after me. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, we don't know. I but think like Hillary Clinton, she decided that it wasn't important and that it was not something that needed to be addressed and that eventually it would go away. Um, and Hillary Clinton found that not to be true, and Elizabeth Warren is finding that not to be true. 
That's a really interesting comparison. I'm glad you made it because I have learned uh, just in the course of a couple months of doing a lot of Warren-related coverage that if you mention her and compare her to Hillary Clinton as a man in particular, that there are people who who see that as crudely reductionist and sexist and, and uh, I guess, they, an example of the think, press being misogynistic. Right. You know? right. They think the same when a woman mentions it, but I continue, oh, to, I continue to mention <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's turn to Moulton for a bit. I was going to read the responses that Ben Smith, the editor of BuzzFeed News, got when he tweeted out their story about Moulton uh, saying that he was thinking about a presidential run. Uh, I then decided that it would probably be gratuitous to read too many of them, but they were not positive. Twitter tends to bring out the worst in humanity, of course, but there were a lot of, you know, LOLs, Seth who, you know, uh, just what we need after his failed attempt to take down Nancy Pelosi. It wasn't an encouraging set of responses. Uh, Joan, what was your reaction when you heard Moulton say that he has this very serious interest in seeking the White House? First, I want to say I'm looking out the window right now. I'm looking at three people waiting for the bus, and I am guessing that none of them know uh, <laughs> what was tweeted about Seth Moulton. I mean, it's such an insider circle that cares That's a good reality and, check. and repeats it. Um, what did I think when I heard that Seth Moulton was mulling a run for president, to be president? Um, well, I thought that he's saying, you know what? People think I'm down and out because I went after Nancy Pelosi. I'm going to show them. Um, huh. That That's kind of what I thought. Um, I thought, hmm, he took an interesting tact by giving a speech about foreign policy when everybody else in the field is talking about Medicare for all or the Green New Deal or domestic issues. He carves out an area that nobody else has really carved out yet. Um, I is it far-fetched to think that he could win the nomination? The measure of conventional wisdom, yeah. But at this point, the field is so big and so many people are thinking about getting in. Why not? Peter Kansas? Well. Too kind, right? I'm being too kind. No, no, you're being very clinical. Um, I wish we had a photographer in here snapping stills so that we could have posted this episode with a photo of you when I threw to you right there because yeah, I mean, you look so... The, the, the guy is either delusional or a big tease. You know, Harvard and the Marine Corps, neither of them uh, institutions that, you know, breed self-effacement, um, have clearly <laughs> gone to his head. Th those are wisecracks, but on a serious note, I, I really wonder if he has anyone on his staff who can tell him he's making a mistake. Now, what I, why do I say that? I say his mistake wasn't in, in being opposed to Nancy Pelosi. His mistake was the way in which he went about it. He wasn't very good at it. There's no mistake in saying he wants to run for president, but, you know, really only talking to the national press about it, it's delusional. I, I honestly don't think he understands the realities of uh, continental uh, retail politics, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. He understands them enough in the congressional district because he pulled off an upset. But he's playing way out of his league. As for his speech, Joan, that was probably scheduled, and I'm not picking a nit here. I'm more of establishing context. This was scheduled for a long time. As as was his appearance in New Hampshire that he coyly toyed with the Globe editorial board on. 
the fact of the matter is, I didn't hear the speech, but when I read it, I was unimpressed. It was sort of boilerplate, new Democrat defense policy stuff. There were, to me, some gaping holes, like, you know, he talks about, you know, being tough with our adversaries, translation, Russia. Well, yeah, um, but Russia someone we have to live with as well. There was, a, I thought, a very smart point um, about the importance of AI, artificial intelligence, and the modern battlefield, and the nature of warfare changing, and that befits a former military man. You know, but it's not rocket science. You compare that with Elizabeth Warren's big, weighty foreign policy magazine piece, which a professor from the Fletcher School summed up as being um, Trumpism without tears, uh, much more isolationist, very sophisticated. You, you know, when he, it's like he's playing in the playpen. So needless to say... That's Peter Kadzis. <laughs> Peter Kadzis, the president of the Seth Moulton fan club. <laughs> By the way, and gentlemen. Uh, up until recently, uh, I, I've been a Seth Moulton fan. I, th I think he's just delusional. He has to decide what he wants. Well, you got further into his speech than I did, clearly, because I, I couldn't... I'm, I'm kind of a nerd on this subject, so... Well, the Massachusetts press is always boo-hoo-hoo when our politicians go to the national press instead of talking to us, but they all do it. I mean, Elizabeth Warren had a pretty much of a direct line to Rachel Maddow for yeah. a long time where she wouldn't even deign to stop to talk to uh, beat reporters who were covering her in the Senate. Okay, so so Seth Moulton, let me, let me I don't know if pushback is, is the right way to put it, but is it possible that in a field as big as the Democratic field is shaping up to be, that his having opposed Pelosi's return as speaker could actually differentiate him from the rest of the field in a way that's beneficial. You know, there's a bunch of Democrats who... Go ahead. Sorry. No, Peter. no. I was going to say the more successful Pelosi is, the more differentiated yeah. <laughs> he will become. I, I just... Maybe on another planet, but listen, Pelosi, who who I used to have reservations, and those reservations were fine in that time. Listen, Pelosi's emerging as a Churchillian figure. Um, Let's see what happens with this latest deal. Oh, I, I no, mean, no, no, no. We'll see. I said emerging. It's not done. I, I'm not. She's playing her cards very well. Well, he said he was thinking about it. If I had a bet, I'd say he's going to think about it and decide not to run. Yeah. If, if that happens, he... Um, he made a point or made an argument, which I thought was really interesting in that BuzzFeed interview. He said Democrats need to have a nominee for whom challenging Donald Trump isn't the, the biggest thing they've taken on in their lives. And he put it more artfully than I am right here. But that was the gist, that going up against Trump can't be the biggest challenge you've faced. And I thought that was a pretty effective formulation, among other things, because points out the fact that he's a military veteran, obviously, but it also demystifies Trump a little bit, who I think for some Democrats has become this sort of Voldemort, you know, Lord of Evil, uh, irresistible force type figure. And it it pushes back at that. So, uh, you know, it's a good point, by the way. I thought yeah. it I thought it showed the e the kind of ego that Peter was talking about and that he's saying he's basically was saying, listen, I've done battle. I've I've um, fought in combat 
that you want to know you want to know what it's to take something on. That's really taking yeah, something. Yeah, but I, I got to say, as someone who has zero experience with the military and doesn't have family or friends who've served in the military, I feel like isn't it fair for him to point out that that's an important part of his resume, just as it would be, I would think, for Pete Buttigieg, the South Bend mayor, to note that he served in combat. I mean, a lot of us have no experience with that world, and um, you know. No, oh, absolutely. I mean, I give him huge credit for doing what he did. I'm not trying to diminish his military service. Um, it just seemed to, you know, I, maybe ego is the wrong word. He's using what makes him different, and that's what politicians do. So how quickly do you think he will come to the conclusion that a, if, you, if you had to predict, and of course you don't have to, you can tell me, you know, who knows, but uh, how soon do you think we'll know uh, what his intentions actually are? Well, I don't have any inside track to what Seth Moulton is thinking. Um, if he's running for re-election, he's up again in, what, 2020, right? Yeah, he's up in 2020. So when do you have to um, uh, put in your, your papers to say you're running again? Probably, I should know, but I don't. I don't. I mean, yeah. so good thing none of us know. Um, summertime. Summer. That's so, the most. That sounds good. He, 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 so he, he can go out. He can, you know, do do some exploring. Um, it, it's it sounds like it's reasonably enjoyable, unless he gets out there and people start pushing back, and he gets the kind of pushback that he got in the middle of the Pelosi battle when he did a town hall and there were people right. kind of haranguing him. Well, I recently read a really interesting National Journal piece talking about how the big liability he'd face in New Hampshire if he were a candidate in the primary is not his lack of support for Pelosi, but his attempt to drop one of his designated veteran candidates into a race where there was already someone who was beloved by the Democratic establishment in New Hampshire who ended up winning it and how people had bristled at his belief that he could come from outside and play kingmaker uh, by giving someone, uh, uh, giving, you know, New Hampshire someone who has the Seth Moulton uh, stamp of approval, which gets back to the point both of you have made about ego. Right. I mean, I think, in, again, this is a Massachusetts-centric issue when we look at Seth Moulton. And so many people in the political world here just, just dislike him because he went up against John Tierney and beat him. Does that still matter? Yeah, I think I mean, it does. I, I think there are a lot I, of people in the establishment that still remember that. That's it interesting. It sort of drives their, their yeah, contempt yeah, for him, his dislike for him. How that affects actual real-life voters and people, I don't think it does at all. But, I mean, within the Massachusetts political world, there's still a lot of dislike for Seth Moulton. I mean, I always just think of him alone in the lunchroom. Wondering if anybody else. <laughs> well, I mean, that's. I, I'm sure you're right. I, I'm not sure it matters in in this context. I I think what, in this goes back to the the issue I raised before about does he have anyone on his staff who can say, hey, congressman, let's make up our minds here, um, and what he should be making his mind up about is you know, okay, is he going to run for president? If he is, the, you know, if Sherrod Brown doesn't run. Sherrod Brown's done a much more effective job of toying with the national public and press than has Moulton. And I, I think Moulton has to decide in the short run, does he want to be a, a power or an influential player in the halls of Congress, or does he want to be nationally? Well, I very rarely agree with Howie Carr, but I agree with what he wrote today. Oh, my God. What was that? <laughs> Not everything. But he said that Moulton wanted to run against Ed Markey, which I do yep, believe. That's the other possibility, um, right? The whole Pelosi thing kind of, uh, for the moment, killed that off. 
partly because it made him more of a figure of contempt here in Massachusetts, and, and people are threatening to run against him now. Um, and in lieu of running against Ed Markey, he's decided to run for president. I mean, well, I, think but, but, I actually think it's as simple as that. I did, but by the way, that makes perfect sense because it's sort of, you know, it's like you're looking at a family member. Why did they do this thing? Well, the, this is why, you, you know, uh, he or she broke up with their significant others and they're <laughs> on the rebound. That's great. Um, but, you know, if, if he wants a serious career, which he's had so far, he just needs to think more clearly. And as far as, like, listening to a staff person, does anybody listen to a staff person? It didn't, did a staff person say to Elizabeth Warren, um, Senator, if you have any more things that you filled out that said American Indian, why don't you get it out right now? Well, but no, but let's say Ted Kennedy, you know, when, when, when Kennedy agonized about whether he should run for president against Jimmy Carter and stuff. There were many people advising him not to. He did it anyway. No, well, there were many people <laughs> advising him too, but I just finished, I wish I could remember the author's name, the terrific book um, about the Kennedy... Carter. Oh, the new one, right? I don't remember the, the, I can't even remember the title, but it's on my list of books I it, really want to read. It's very, very good, very convincing, you know, blow-by-blow blow accounts of both how Carter and Kennedy listened or didn't listen to their staff. And let's take Carter's case. When Carter didn't listen to them, he was usually right, except for that big time when he did, then he was wrong. I think I'm molten out. On that note, I think the latest installment of The Scrum has drawn to a close. Did you want to say something else, Joan? Actually, I see you looking like there was a, a point you wanted to no, make. No, I was just going to say that I, I the Molten uh, office, you know, his press person put out reactions to his speech, and in the National Journal headline was, So Hot He's Molten. Well, <laughs> good. I, I mean... I don't know who wrote that, but it's kind of funny. Uh, that's a great headline. You know, that offers possibilities for punning that had never even occurred to me, right? The speech was solid boilerplate, you know, foreign policy, <laughs> not an original idea. Really. Remind me not to have you review anything that I've written, Peter. I'm really glad you mentioned that little... Uh, wow, it was there. great. That's the best part of the podcast. All right, with that, another installment of The Scrum has drawn to a close. Thanks, as always, to my colleague Peter Kadzis and to Joan Vanaki of the Boston Globe. And thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen. If you haven't already subscribed to The Scrum, you really should. We're available on Apple Podcasts and at a bunch of other places, too. One more thing. We want to try something new in the next episode. We're going to do a listener mailbag consisting of praise, addendums, withering criticism, and uh, anything else that might come our way. So if you have anything you would like to say to us, drop us an email, and we will try to incorporate your comments our address is scrum at wgbh.org. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.